First John always has these confusing aspects uh, that uh, almost to the first read through seem meandering and um, goalless. But in reality, uh, he's exactly right in the way he lays this out. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God is love. These, these types of statements are the anchor statements of, of how this, this whole picture is, is described uh, for the churches that he is writing to. Now, um, we are going to pick up in 1 uh, John chapter 3. So we will find ourselves in the second series of cycles. Um, so, But keep in mind all of this. The, um, the whole point, uh, I, that is his conclusion, but the whole point of why John is writing this, he also says this is in the verses beforehand, where he says, the reason I'm writing this is so that you who believe may know that you have eternal life, right? Uh, and this is how we also uh, draw parallels between the author of the Gospel of John and the author of 1 John as being the same person. Because in the Gospel of John, he says, I'm writing these things so that you may believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and have life in his name. And then he writes 1 John and he says, I'm writing this to those of you who believe that you may know that you have eternal life. In other words, assurance is a huge part of this. Uh, especially for a generation that has not personally witnessed these things. And so it's, it's hugely important, um, and it's right before the conclusion where he says that, and it's chapter 5, verse uh, 13 um, and 14. If you ever want to know why First John was written, he tells us explicitly. Uh, John is the only person who does this in the, uh, in the New Testament, uh, and so that is very, very helpful when you're preaching through First John uh, to always anchor it in, this is why this is being written. It's so that true Christians, as he says this in verse 13, chapter 5, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. In other words, that there is something, uh, a part of this, uh, that is much bigger than just your experiences. It has to be grounded in the word of God. It has to be grounded in the promises of God. And that's where we express. So since all of that assurance, since all of that knowledge, and I'm going to kind of translate this to more linear because that's how I think and that's kind of how our culture thinks. Since all of this is intending to give us assurance of these things, our assurance depends on the promise of God. And so we must know who is this God that we are depending on. Who is the God that made the promises that give us eternal life? God is light. God is love. These are the two main promises that John focuses on. And so he does not mention the Spirit of God until we get into uh, the, the first round of the second cycles. So you've got all of this discussion of the person and work of Jesus Christ, the will of the Father, uh, all that has been going on, you get this for, for a few chapters, and then we finally get to the very last verse of chapter 3. And he connects all of this together with the role of the Spirit in our life. Let's pick up in verse 21. Beloved, if our heart condemns, uh, does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Actually, let me back up to verse 19 because this really does get this whole assurance uh, concept. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. That's a great thing, by the way. Great goal, great desire. We want to be able to establish our own assurance in our own minds uh, because there is a difference between being saved and feeling like you are saved. Right? Anyone who's been a Christian for any amount of time knows that difference. And here he's saying 
that's a legitimate difference. Our, our perspective on God's promises does not change whether or not we're saved, but whether or not we appreciate, and not even appreciate, but can fully see and recognize our own salvation is of concern. And so he says, by this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. If false teachers are going around and they are self-deceived, isn't the possibility for those who are attending churches to be self-deceived as well? In fact, Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 7 that the majority of people who consider themselves followers of Christ are indeed not. And so the question arises, how do I know I am? And then furthermore, how do I know you are? How do you know I am? These are real-life questions that the church has to interact with. He says in verse 20, For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Oh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 21 now. 1 John. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, that would be thoroughly confusing. Same author, same God, same Bible, but uh, boy, completely different purposes. Yeah, these these uh, these books are so small in that section of scripture that chapter three we're right at verse twenty one. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. That's a wonderful thing, right? But then we also have to understand what what if our heart is wrong, right? I mean, if we're Christians and our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence with God. That's great. But what if we're self deceived? Self-deceived people have plenty of confidence before God. In fact, Jesus describes the exact way. Many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this, 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 and this, and this in your name? And he's got a huge list. Healing sick, casting out demons, all sorts of things that they were able to do at various times in history. And what does Jesus answer to them? Never knew you. It wasn't that you lost anything. You were saved and then, no. You and I have had absolutely no relationship at all. Those are haunting words. They're reality, though. And so John is writing to the churches and saying there is value in having assurance and confidence before the throne of God. Verse 22, And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment. Now, here's the thing. As soon as you hear verse 22, you go, Okay, I, I want to do the commandments of God, but how many times have I failed? Have I failed too many times? And you can see people going, now, now that just shatters my confidence because all that fills my mind is all the failures that I have in my Christian walk. And so he stops right there and says, you want to know what the commandments are? You want to know what the actual commandment is? Verse 23, this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and then love one another. It is not more complicated than that. It is not a matter of keeping track of every single failure and fault and sin and destructive action, habit, and everything else in our lives. You will never actually defeat all of those. The question that is posed to those who are saved and those who are not saved is not a matter of how much you have done. It's not a matter of doing more good than outweighs your evil. You have no hope of that, neither do I, neither does anybody else. In fact, we are told that even in our best moments, we are still sinful. 
So then what is the command? How does one keep the commands? And he defines it for us here. And he says, this is his commandment, that we believe, that we have faith on Christ, and out of that flows this love of one another. If that exists in your life, that is something that, as he is comparing and contrasting to these false teachers, that does not exist in their life. They may think they believe in Christ, and yeah, they are self-deceived to this, but it will show up. It will show up in what they focus on. It will be self rather than Christ. Or it will be church rather than Christ. Or it will be family rather than Christ. It will be anything will take the place of Christ. Because here's what we realize, and that's where the conclusion really comes into play throughout all of this. If we are finding ourselves constantly making idols to get Christ out of our lives, even sometimes without intention, that is a very, very dangerous thing to realize about ourselves. If we would rather serve a Christ of our own making and of our own intention, how many times have you heard me pray, God, we want to worship you as you reveal yourselves to be, as you reveal yourself to be, not as we would prefer you to be. That is a prayer I have prayed thousands of times because I know the propensity that we have for making a God of our own choosing. We don't want God to be Oh, mean. We don't want him to be powerful. We don't want him to be vindictive or take vengeance. I, I, I assure you, you do. As a Christian, you absolutely want God to take vengeance. You just don't know where the lines are drawn. When I see somebody murdering or raping children or something like this, guess what? Vengeance. But as Christians, is it ours to take vengeance or is it ours to leave it to the Lord and he will enact his wrath on them? Absolutely. But it is not ours to pick up that sword and do so. It is God's. And so what does Jesus say? He doesn't say, don't take vengeance because vengeance is bad. No, he says, don't take vengeance because vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So that type of weak, powerless, begging Savior is not the Savior of Scripture. The Savior of Scripture is powerful, is God of the heavens and the earth, is Lord of all of these things, and is the one who will exact his justice and his reign to every molecule on the face of earth, in heaven, in space, and in all the galaxies. That is the God that we serve. That is what Scripture expresses to us. That is what it teaches to us. And so when we look at this, we go, I would rather focus on myself instead of Christ. And you will see this, especially with false teachers. This shows up in the church all the time. I used to say um, in my less um, filtered days, um, I used to, <laughs> I used to introduce, there was, okay, there was a span of time where I welcomed the church by warning against false teaching every Sunday. It's 11 a.m. False teachers are crawling up into pulpits all around this land. And we have the job of ensuring that that is not us. I welcomed our church for many months that way. Because the reality is it is out there and I kept running into it and it was so frustrating to me. The warning is true. <laughs> Just not as couth as some people would prefer. But as John is writing here, he says... This exists out there. How can we not only be not self-deceived, how can we ensure that the person who is giving us the word of God is not self-deceived? 
Pastors and preachers hold a very large sway in people's lives. What if they are self-serving? The majority of them are. What if I am? What if this church is? What questions do we ask? What goals should we see? What infatuations should we see? The goal of every ministry, of every pastor, of every Christian ought to be, as he described in verse 23, that commandment there, believe on Jesus Christ and love one another. Because what's going to happen eventually? Eventually, a wolf has to show his true fur. Eventually, the whole spin of everything is going to have to be on self-aggrandizement or on vision setting or on something that has taken over their life will bleed out to the church. And it will show up in our fellowship because if we are not believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, we will certainly not love one another. Not as Christ has instructed. Because we cannot, and so many people get this wrong, we do not love one another and then appreciate God. We must love one another out of a life that loves the Lord. It's not the other way around. It's the second commandment for a reason. We love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and out of that flows all the other commandments. The only reason we love the Lord our God is because, and he will discuss this in 1 John, is because he first loved us. It is not something that we just dug down into our own selves and went, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to fix my life. I'm going to love God, how it works, and everything's going to be great. And that's where it all started. No, as we learn, it all started with God setting his affection on us. And because he first loved us, now we are able to love God. And because he loves that person over there and saves them, now we are able to love them. In fact, he will go to such great detail to say, if you do not love other Christians, the love of God is not in you. Think about that. Which means we now have to make calls about who we're fellowshipping with because fellowship is dangerous if it's with somebody that's not a Christian. We open ourselves up. The same thing we do when it comes to pastors or teachers or even marriage uh, partners. We open ourselves up for a great deal of influence. And so we must ensure that what we are doing and who we are aiming at carries this at the center of who they are. Christ is their preoccupation and out of their life flows things consistent with that. This is exactly what John the Baptist said to the Pharisees. They came out observing him, baptizing people and things like this, and he refused to baptize them. He called them a pit of vipers. Why? Because you claim to have repentance, but you do not bear fruit keeping with it. Now, can John the Baptist see people's hearts? No. You can only see the fruit of their life. And he has to make calls on that. Same as we do. Nobody likes doing that, but the reality is you don't have omniscience, so you have to. And so, yes? Uh, actually, no. He was killed because he called out uh, King Herod for marrying his brother's wife. And, um, yeah. That's why he was beheaded. He was calling people out, absolutely, 100%. And it led to his death, right? 
and because that's kind of how it works. Um, you don't ever deal with problems and it doesn't cost you something. And, and that's one of the things that Jesus says about John the Baptist is, uh, I mean, he made the call for us. There's no one greater born among women except John the Baptist. And he says, and then he says, but the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. And he uses that great hyperbole of comparison. But yeah, no, he was calling out people constantly, all the time. And then when Jesus showed up, what did he do? Did he call out Jesus or did he call it himself? That, yeah. Why in the world do you think I am able to baptize you? I can't baptize you. And Jesus says, suffer it so now to fulfill all righteousness, right? Because the reality is, when we follow Christ, we are going to abhor sin first in our own life and then also in others' lives. It's going to, we, we're going to hate it. There are some times where it deceives us for a good amount of time first. But this is a picture of one's entire life. And so when it comes to these false teachers, we're not talking about they said this word there or that phrase there or this and that there. No, this is looking at everything that they do, the results of everything they do. Does it lead people to Christ or does it lead them to them? That's one of the biggest litmus tests, by the way, of false teachers. What is the effect? Are you more infatuated with Christ or are you more respectful of that person? Huge question. Because the reality is, that's one of the ways that you witness wealth. wealth? Wolves in sheep's clothing is, um, is the effect of what they're doing is not going to be consistent with a sheep. A sheep loves the shepherd. A sheep will push other sheep towards the shepherd. There's a reason why it's called a wolf in sheep's clothing, because as a sheep, they'll be wandering around the fold, pushing people towards them, to consume them, to destroy them. That's how it works. And it will sound just like a sheep, which is why it's so insidious. And that's what was happening in 1 John. And he is writing to defeat them on this. He says it's not even just about the wrong theology they have. Really, it is about the fact that they don't even believe in Christ at all. And their love of one another is actually just a facade in order to destroy other people. This is what he says here. It's brutal stuff. Verse 24 then, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God. In other words, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and out of that flows a life of loving other Christians because God has loved them, we abide in God. That is the life. That is the light and that is the love that he has given. Not only do we abide in God, God abides in us. Look at verse 24. That's insane. I mean, if this was in any other book, what a crazy thing to say. We live in God. Makes somewhat sense. Like we can kind of wrap ourselves into his domain. But God living in us? Without the Spirit of God, this is not possible. And so that's where he includes his first reference. By this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Again, it's not the spirit that he has given us. It is personal. It is identifiable. The spirit of God being a third person of the Trinity here expresses the very fact that he is constantly pushing us onto Christ, which is his main role in the life of a Christian. Believe it or not, it's not about gifts and tricks. It's not about miracles or anything like that. His role has to do with pushing, convicting, and delighting 
people towards Christ. And so that will come out of every Christian, one way or another. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Test the spirits. Some would call that quenching the Spirit of God. That is not the case. One must test everything. One must test every spirit that claims some kind of level of teaching or authority or so forth. You must test the spirits. How do you do that? See whether they are from God. Why? He says, because there's been many false prophets that have gone out in the world. Here, the New Testament is still being written. We're talking the years maybe early 80s, late 70s. Already, there are false prophets in the church. There are traveling false ministers. That's why 2nd and 3rd John are both being written. There are already traveling ministers who go from church to church teaching a false gospel that, again, do they talk about Jesus? Yes. But who is Jesus? Not the king. Not God. Something valuable, maybe a moral teacher, for instance. Maybe a helpful example. These are not Christians. We must test the Spirit. Why? Because what is in their heart will come out of their mouth. No matter how they try to filter it, it will always come out pointing everyone to them. Always. That's what human pride does. It follows the same pattern of Lucifer in Isaiah. Now, whether Lucifer is Satan is a whole other conversation. But as far as for a kingly ruler in this world that got filled up with his own pride, absolutely. Nebuchadnezzar, all of them fell prey to everything we would have fallen prey to as well. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. That is a direct warning to the church. Instead, test the spirits. See whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. What is the Spirit of God infatuated with? What does he say in verse 2? How do you know it's of the Spirit of God and not of the Spirit of man or of these other things? Yeah, what are they focused on? All the time, every time, everywhere. A false prophet, a wolf in sheep's clothing, cannot help but push the sheep towards their jaws. Because if the sheep are near the shepherd, that's dangerous for the wolf. You see it? Because a shepherd can destroy the wolf with a single blow. But for the sh- a wolf in sheep's clothing, he's there literally to deceive the sheep. He's there to appear like a sheep. He'll talk like a sheep. He'll bow like a sheep. But at the end of the day, the direction that you are in will be pushed towards them rather than the shepherd. That is the one defining characteristical difference between one who has the Spirit of God and one who does not, who is in a teaching role in the church. And so it is absolutely essential for the church to carry out discernment in this. This isn't some ethereal, spiritual, cloud-like thing. These are direct expressions of how we do this. You say, well, wouldn't some good pastors maybe, uh, or just some well-meaning but uh, distracted pastors get wrapped up in the definition of false prophets? Yep. Yep. It'll take ignorant ones out of the pulpits too. I would rather that happen than to allow a single false teacher to ever be in a church.
when I look at somebody and consider them for ordination, I was on an ordination council just uh, two months ago. I'm not sitting there giving them a theology quiz. False teachers have a wonderful way of looking like sheep. They can, they can quote theology. I tell you what, Satan himself would pass every single seminary everywhere. He has better theology than all of us. Right? He knows exactly who God is. He knows everything about this stuff. It is not about that. I want to know their life. I want to know what they push people towards. I want to know who they're infatuated with. I want to know these things. I want to see because as we see these lists in 1 Peter or excuse me, 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus chapter 2, we will see a description of a life bent towards Christ rather than bent towards self. What do you set aside that is hard for you to set aside simply to follow Christ more closely? Those are the types of questions I ask at these because of these passages. Yes, sir. Most of them do not. And that's the most terrifying thing of all. Because the most dangerous wolf is the one who thinks he's a sheep. Self-deceived. Again, look at the ones that go to Christ at the end of the age that he mentions. Didn't we do this? Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do all of these things? And Jesus says what to them? I'll remind us again. Yes, sir. Yes. The ones that don't know they're false teachers are really doing it for God. Yes. They just don't realize yes. they're going in the wrong direction. Give it enough time. And the reality is false teachers do show their colors eventually. You will watch it in slow slides. You will watch it sometimes in fast slides. You will watch it in times of, uh, of cultural unfaithfulness where a culture all of a sudden makes a, a hard turn and you will watch them follow the culture rather than Christ. It's happening in droves right now. It just happened to the Anglican church last week. Oh, well, you can look up the news story. It's a much bigger story than I could even address here. But let's just say they're following the, the example of Rome to bless marriages that the scripture has no knowledge or and quite a lot to say against because what you're going to witness is when when a hard turn happens you're going to find those who are consistently focused on christ and those who are like oh my gosh what do we do uh we want to follow the culture so bad false teacher run run because the reality is even if they just curve a bit towards that, what's going to happen eventually is they're going to curve all the way towards it. Give it enough time and you will see it. It happens in cultural shifts. It happens all the time. Um, and it's not a matter of knowing too much or they, they got to read a bunch of books and we haven't. No, no, no. I've read all the same books. It's nonsense. All it is is a life that is not focused on Christ will inevitably display itself. Sometimes it takes decades. Yes, sir. That is one of them, absolutely. Yeah, that one too. All, yeah, every every area at some point. So I mean, that one was a pretty clear one. But unfortunately, there are people who are self-deceived, thinking it is God's will that 
women have choices rather than children have lives. Which is not somebody who knows anything about scripture or the church. Yes, ma'am. Right, yeah, no, you, you and I will agree 100% on this. Uh, what I am saying is there are people who stand in pulpits and preach the opposite. And... Some of them. Most of them don't. God's will. Yep, absolutely. Yes, 100%. So, so here's, here's what I do, and you are exactly right. The Bible is not wishy-washy on either of these two things. It is deathly clear, uh, and sometimes brutally clear. Uh, and so is the early church, so is the church. It's, it's not even up for debate. Um, and so anyone who's trying to debate it does not have one of two things as an authority, either Christ or his scriptures. And if you do not have Christ or his scriptures as your authority, you are not a Christian. Especially if you are a teacher. Now, not only are you an unbeliever, you are a false teacher. And so what happens all the time when somebody will say something like this to me and they'll go like, well, yeah, you know, we need to sit down and have a conversation about this or not. And I start quoting scripture and they go, oh, well, you know, I'm a clobber pastor. So, okay, you don't have the authority of scripture. We're not even speaking on the same level, right? There's no point if you think that there is a different authority, that you don't need Christ, you don't need the scriptures, and you're going to still call yourself a Christian. Nonsense. Nonsense. You Go create a new religion. Do not take Christianity and change it into what you want it to be. Go start a new one. You can do that. It's a free country. I will just will be able to speak with more honesty, but nobody wants to be honest. And honestly, there's a lot of people out there who see themselves as legitimate pastors who are doing this. Uh, I run into them on Twitter all the time. All the time. Constantly assessing themselves to be correct with all this, consistent with the scriptures, but then not know a darn thing about them. Not one thing. And do not care about Christ except for a Christ that they've made in their minds. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That was, that was the era of the liberals, modernism. Uh, nowadays, it's, um, we've moved from modernism and liberalism into post-modernity post and post-liberalism, which will look at the scriptures and say it's not about what the author intended. It's not about inspiration or whatnot. If you want to believe in inspiration, it's perfectly fine with you. It's about how these words make me feel. And so you'll have Bible studies that will read a passage of scripture and then go around and say, how, how do you react to that passage as a, um, you know, you, you are a, I don't know, an, an ethnically oppressed Native American, that, you know, with two spirit animals. How do you interact with that passage? Look, the reality is it is irrelevant how you interact with the passage if you do not know what the passage means. Right, And so this is the massive problem that we're about to fall headlong in in the church because we capitulated on that, where we just go like, oh, it's old, it's outdated. We kind of apologize for God for doing the conquest of Canaan, and he's really mean, and so we don't really pay attention to the Old Testament. We just pay attention to the parts that we like. I'm sorry. You can make a false god from the scriptures. Did you know that? Very easily. By just paying attention to what you like. 
that is where most false teachers who are self-deceived go. And so you will see them preaching on the word of God, but avoiding massive sections. Always. Whoa, it's like putting two North Pole magnets next to each other. Their authority and the authority of scripture will never touch. This is, this is what John is saying. He says, we have a concrete way of determining these things. It shows up in the fellowship of those under their leadership. It shows up in their own lives. It shows up in what you start loving more, them or Christ. That's what he's saying. It's brutal, but what a way to describe it in all these little cycles and twists and turns. And he just goes and turns the screws to false teachers and goes like, you can deceive people with your words all the live long day, but you cannot deceive what is going on in their hearts with the Spirit of God. This is actually not only just a down payment, the Spirit of God for heaven, this is the protection and the seal of true Christians. Which means true Christians, if they're sitting under a false teacher, there's going to be the thing that the Spirit of God is pushing them towards is not consistent with the things that their leaders are pushing them towards. You say, well, what about for somebody who's not a Christian? John's not writing to them. You say, well, what if that's me? What do you love? What do you love? By this you know the Spirit of God. It's in verse 2 here in verse, uh, chapter 4. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. In other words, this is all that they are focused on. Christ and nothing else. It is very easy in our current culture because we treat churches like businesses. It is very easy for the first place that misapplication of leadership occurs is a church's goal is not Christ anymore. A church's goal is their name or their building or their reputation. Their bank account. Or their bank account, right. It, it's always going to be like a false teacher, self-focused. A church that is focused on Christ will not lift up any of those things at the expense of Christ. You can do all those things but you cannot do them at the expense of Christ. You cannot do them even at the expense of Christ being primary for the church. Here is how we determine the spirits of Antichrist. And he does not hold back. John is just simply brutal here in verse 3. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is not just a somewhat wrong spirit. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. This spirit is the chief spirit of the enemies of God. Which means we have to be on the lookout for this massively. So we can't flirt with it. This is not just like, a, oh, well, you know, I guess this year we'll focus on Jesus and next year we'll focus on the community. What? That's not how this works. The church is either going to be focused on Christ and out of that flows every other love of one another and then well after that, like eight Doors down from that, eight commandments down from that, is love of community. Love of Christ, love of his people, love of his word, love of his, all of these other things. Beyond that is, is a love that we enact towards those that we drive on the interstate with. 
It's in a completely different category. We do good to all, yes, but especially to the household of faith, the word says. Why does it say it like that? Because if you're not going to do it in the church, what you're going to do in the community is completely different than anything you could call love. At least from God. And it can very easily become self-focused to the point of Antichrist. It's brutal. Verse 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is greater in you, uh, excuse me, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. I think one of the gravest errors that the modernist church has made, not only do they not take scripture seriously, they do not take Satan seriously. At all. Oh, cool story, I guess, from a different era. No. No, no. Jesus spoke with him personally, face to face, in the wilderness. There is literally a spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience in the present dark age. And the church would be wise to fear that existence and to interact with God as a protection rather than self. No, they do not, because they are ashamed of being seen as fools. And what does Paul say about that? Me, when I walk into the synagogue, I specifically speak in terms that are culturally foolish, so that you do not follow Christ out of the words of man. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, by the way. Which, which for those churches who are focusing on being relevant to everything, would do well to take heed to that chapter because Paul says, I refuse to be relevant to the culture because otherwise them following Christ is based on my words rather than the Spirit of God. And so, I mean, here, all the apostles are perfectly consistent with this. John says the exact same thing here. That This is not a matter of one way, that way, any which way. No, no, no. There are two sides to this cosmic war that are going on. And the reality is, is the other side is really, really, really good at sabotage. Just really, really good at sabotage. And where do false teachers love to go? They love to go to church. Most people do not think on these terms. They go, oh, we're in church. That's the safest place. This is where warfare is fought over the health of the sheep. This is where warfare is fought. This is why the sword that we carry is not a physical one. It's this. This is why everything comes back to Christ. And if it is not, find a church that will push you towards Christ. And John will, will bend this and twist it and wrap it around again and again and again and again and keep reinforcing this. Verse 5 is more terrifying than anything to our current state of the church. They, he's speaking of false teachers, they are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. Do you see the difference? If we change the message of the gospel so that the world will accept us more, what are we proving to be? false teachers, bearing not the spirit of God, but instead what? Spirit of the Antichrist. Antichrist sounds big and mean. and Here's Antichrist. Anything except Christ is against Christ. Anything, any goal, 
Any life lived for anything. You say, well, I mean, geez, this person did all sorts of these good works. Yes, their God was themselves and their reputation. I'll tell you, the most mature Christians I have ever met, Christ reigns off of them. Do you know what I mean by that? If you talk to them about something, they're not, they're not just going to spin the conversation about their accomplishments or the importance of the ministry that they have done or how many ways God has blessed them. No, instead they're going to be like, Christ is highest above all things. It's like, you know, it's amazing that you've done this and this and this and this. No, it's not. It's amazing what Christ has done for us. I shared last Sunday before uh, Ralph uh, preached, I shared with him that quote from a pastor I know that has um, terminal cancer. And he says he keeps getting this advice where people will show up and, and say, God is good, he's probably going to heal you. And he, he looks back and he says, God is good, he gave me Christ. What, what more need have we of anything? What more? No, that's okay. What more focus, what more goal is worthy than that? Any other goal is Antichrist, anything else, including good things. In fact, especially good things. Those are the most deceptive of all. It was Charles Spurgeon that once said the, the highest wisdom, I'm going to paraphrase the beginning part because I don't remember exactly the beginning part, but I do remember the end. The highest wisdom the Christian's walk uh, is not a matter of determining right from wrong. It is a determining of almost right and right. The hardest part of the wisdom of walking with Christ is not going, oh, abortion. That one's easy. You're murdering a kid. But when somebody comes in and they can quote the scriptures and they're charismatic in their leadership, they have a good resume, good education. I'll tell you, I, I, I'm in a doctoral program with 28 other people. Some of them have resumes that are far better than mine, and they are false teachers, and they will lead hundreds of people astray throughout their life if they do not become Christians. Have you ever talked to them about that fact? Yes. It did not earn me many popularity points at school. I had one telling me that I, he could teach me how to speak in tongues. I said, then it's worthless. Correct. And, oh, they're absolutely infatuated with the good they're doing. Correct. Correct, 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 correct. Look, look at the infatuation with their own self on Jesus' own lips, right? When he is talking about this, and most people pass right by this. Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do all these good works in your name? Didn't we he cast out demons? Didn't we do this, do this, do this, do that? What are they infatuated with? Themselves. To those who he did not cast out, did anyone, does anyone ever look at what they say? Jesus comes up to them and says, you did all of these things in, uh, not in my name, but you've done these things. What do they respond? 
when did we ever see you poor or sick or naked or wounded or any of these things? We, we never did anything right. We've just been following you. Here, here, here. And he shows them because what do they focus on? They're focused on Christ, not themselves and their accomplishments, their good works, nothing. Right? Jesus gives a parable to illustrate this in Luke chapter 18, one of my favorite parables. The Pharisee and the tax collector go up to the temple to pray. Two guys. One is a false teacher. The other is a tax collector that is absolutely hated by the people of God because he is capitulated to Rome. The first way to capitulate to Rome. What does the Pharisee pray? You want to talk about self-deception. Just, just such a beautiful prayer, right? Lord, I thank you that you have not made me a swindler. You didn't make me a, uh, an adulterer. You didn't make me any of these things. I tithe everything I make. I, I, I go to synagogue. I teach the word of God. I do all these things. Great. Everything's a thank you. Just such a grateful sermon. Wonderful. I have heard prayers like this. Or what did the tax collector pray? Anyone remember? One sentence. Wouldn't even look up to heaven. Beat his breast, put his face to the ground, and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, in no uncertain terms, verbatim, I tell you, one of these went home justified rather than the other. One of them was still standing in front of a synagogue the next Saturday, Sabbath morning, preaching. And he was a false teacher. And he kept preaching. He kept preaching. Kept preaching. The tax collector sat in the pew and listened. One was justified, the other one wasn't. It is harsh language, but it's reality. Because at the end of the day, he says in all of this, he says, especially for the apostles and what they're doing, verse 6, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. There. What did the apostles write? What did the true prophets write? What is the church founded on? The apostles, the prophets, the New Testament, the Old Testament, the message of the cross, and all the prophets and the apostles point to Christ. That is why we love the scriptures. We do not love the scriptures because they're right. Primarily, we love the scriptures because they point us to Christ and that resonates with the spirit of God in our hearts. So here's the thing. A Christian comes up, a supposed Christian comes up and, and tells me all these things about their life. That tells me, how did we start this out? The spirit of God told me to tell you that you need to go to Botswana this summer. I'm going to ask him where it came from. I'm going to ask them what they think of that in light of scripture. Do you know why? Because I'm not just going to go, no, that's insane. You're a crazy person. I want to actually determine this. And so I'll ask them where in scripture that came from. Oh, scripture. You know, I mean, I, I dream and this and that. So, okay, okay, okay. Tell me your favorite thing about Christ. Tell me your favorite passages of scripture. Do you know why I'm asking those questions? As I am probing the spirit that's speaking, 
And if they do not listen to what the apostles and the true prophets say, I'm not going to listen to what they have to say. And if they are not infatuated with Christ, I'm not interested in their living out their fantasies for my life. All of these things point away from the Spirit of God and what he's doing. The Spirit of God is always focused on Christ. That is why you hardly ever hear any words from him. That is why we have hardly any teaching about him in the scriptures, because his entire goal is to reflect people towards Christ, not to take on some focused role. It's what he does. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. And this is why when I get um, into debates with false teachers, I will quote scripture once, twice, and when it is dismissed both times, I'm done. I'm done. What is the point? You will never listen to them. You're not going to listen to me. You certainly won't listen to anything else. There's no point. Now I just have to warn people about you. That's it. And in fact, scripture tells us that. When you find false teachers, mark them, avoid them, and carry on preaching the gospel. That's our goal. That's our job. He says, by this, he says at the end of verse 6, we know the spirit of truth, capital S, and the spirit, lowercase s, of error. Truth is God's truth. No matter where you find it, you will love it. It's a great thing. Being a Christian makes us the most curious people on earth. It's fantastic. The Christian worldview has been the foundation of every scientific revolution, discovery, everything else from the past several hundred years. Why? Because we set our minds on living consistently with the book of scripture and with the book of nature. Now others in pursuing science decided that science was an authority for themselves. Again, we make idols out of everything. But make no mistake about it, the scientific revolution started with Christians seeking to understand God's creation better. If you don't believe me, you can watch some of the things about that I taught on in church history about the early enlightenment. The whole point was to understand what God is doing in the world on the same level that we understand what God is doing in the scriptures. How did he make these things? What, is he, what did he do these things for? It's a, it's a remarkable curiosity for Christians. We get to pursue all of these things because we serve the one who made them all. So every truth we find is his. And we give him thanks for it. It's an incredible thing. Especially scripture and especially Christ. Um... I wish I could have finished up chapter 5. We'll pick up just there, chapter 5, verse 6, next time. It won't take us too long, but I'm already past time. Um, and then we'll go to the book of Revelation next week, okay? Any questions here as we, uh, as we end it? Awesome. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for his, uh, his constant and consistent message to the church to repent of themselves, of their idols, of everything else, and instead believe on the gospel, the good news that Christ himself, Lord of heaven and earth, creator of all things seen and unseen, has come and was born as one of us, humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, you, our Father, has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he indeed is Lord of heaven and earth. We pray that we all confess that now, are infatuated with him now, and even more so as days grow difficult or dark, we do not define ourselves by what we are against, we instead define ourselves by who we are following. May it be the Christ as he reveals himself to be, 
rather than the Christ we have created of our own imaginations. We pray in your Son's name. Amen. Amen.